Before we get started with the show today, I have a listener to thank for a donation. Marion Somers set up donations for $10 a month. Thank you so much, Marion. Uh, she writes to us that she's mostly working in acrylics, but she's just starting to get started in cold wax. Um, you can check out her website at MarianSomers.com. It's M-A-R-I-A-N-S-O-M-M-E-R-S.com. And she describes her work as being a an interaction, like a dance with a canvas, which I think is a really good way to describe it. It's really full of energy and color, beautiful work. So once again, check out her website at MarianSomers.com. And thank you so much again for your donation of $10 a month. These uh, these monthly donations really, really help us to be able to pay our monthly hosting fees and things like that. If you would like your own shout out on the Messy Studio Podcast, please go to www.messystudiopodcast.com and click the donate button. It's a yellow button in the upper right hand corner. There you can set up a single time or a recurring monthly donation for literally any amount. That's www.messystudiopodcast.com. So once again, thank you, Marion, and on with the show. Hello and welcome to The Messy Studio with Rebecca Kroll, the podcast at the intersection of art, travel, entrepreneurship, philosophy, and life in general. I am Ross Tickner, Rebecca's audio producer, podcast guru, and her son. On today's show, we are talking about materiality. The materials an artist uses are one of the first things we notice when looking at art. We may see paint, clay, wood, paper, pencil, or an intriguing combination of many materials and processes. Beyond their visual impact alone, materials can also evoke feelings and ideas that add to the meaning of the work. Today we're going to talk about materiality in art, its impact, and the decisions involved in choosing art materials. With me, as always, is Rebecca Kroll. Hello, everyone. Uh, this topic is a very big one, and it's one that we really haven't talked about very much on the podcast. And recently, I posted something on Facebook um, asking artists to tell about using mixed media, and I got many responses. And I realized that we should really start with... Uh, more of an introductory episode about materiality and what it is. And, and mixed media is just part of that. And then, so we'll follow this one with, with at least one other podcast uh, touching on this topic um, and, and overlapping, say, with collage or um, found object sculpture and things like that. So materiality is a word that m many people may not be familiar with. Um, and I guess... To start off with a really simple example of what that might mean would be, uh, think about two tables. I mean, these are objects, right? Um, one of them is a carved wood. Maybe it's an older table. It has a certain homey feeling to it. And the other one is made out of some kind of sleek, shiny metal, maybe with a glass top or something. And you look at these two tables, and they have a completely different impact um, on you when you see them and they have they suggest different uses they suggest a different environment different contexts um, different visual language and our sensory response to these two tables is very different and they evoke different feelings and um, so I, I pick tables because they're not necessarily works of art although they can be but because we do look at a table as an object, and one of the things about 
materiality as a concept is it sort of emphasizes the object quality of art, that art as a thing. What's the thing made of? How is the thing made? Um, it's the physical aspects of it. And so, um, you know, we'll leave those tables behind now, but that was just a kind of a simple uh, image that if you're, if you're not familiar with the word, what's so what we're talking about here. Um, and it includes both the materials and the processes, how something's made. Um, and how, how this, how the, these choices that the artist makes about their materials and processes creates some meaning. Um, and, and just a few examples to start, and then we'll get into more of this later, but sometimes it's the material itself that is important. It's, it's what's emphasized. Um, there's a Nigerian artist, um, El Anatsui, that a lot of people are familiar with. And he does these amazing tapestry-like um, objects on the wall. And they are pieced together using, um, a lot of them are using these like um, pull tabs from aluminum cans, uh, recycled materials, found objects. And they appear very elegant. And it's this incredible juxtaposition of this kind of throwaway material and what he does with it. Um, and it, it's sort of important to know that when you see the piece, what's it made out of? And then this sets up this kind of interesting juxtaposition of what we value and what we throw away. Um, so he's, you know, he's very interested in the, the source of the material that he's using and wants the viewer to know it. Um, other artists kind of disguise how they're working. That they may use a lot of different materials, but it's done in a sort of obscured or mysterious way. Um, and this example of this would be just the layering um, process of working with cold wax medium that I use. I mean, the things I use to make textures and all that is kind of disguised through the layering process so that it, it becomes... Uh, not a question of what or how, but the the visual impact of it. So that's a that's a different approach. Um, and as I mentioned, the the process itself can be really a part of this. How are these materials that a person is using? How are they going to work? And are they, if there are various materials, how are they going to work together? And it it can create a lot of uh, technical challenges and visual challenges. To make your material work. Um, sometimes the way that things are brought together, if somebody's working in, in mixed media, uh, is what creates contrast or tension in the work, because you're aware of these kind of opposing ideas. Like I mentioned um, with the other artist I, I talked about a minute ago, um, and they evoke different um, associations like cloth and, and metal would, would do. And I'll talk about that more in a little bit. And and there's also always the aspect of intention. Why why are you drawn to these materials? What are they saying to you? And what do you hope they say to somebody else? And that can be really simple. I mean, it can be very straightforward, or it can be much more complicated and conceptual. Um, so, and all of these things are choices that the artist makes. And sometimes we make them without a lot of thought, you know, it's like, well, that's what I do. I oil paint, you know, 
And so um, that the point of this podcast really is to, is to bring that to light. And for many artists, it's already in the spotlight. This is absolutely what what they're interested in, in working with. And others maybe haven't really thought about it too much. A lot of these decisions are made out of necessity. They're, uh, you're working with what you have available, um, or it may be that you are um, that you're you are particularly drawn to something, or it just works well for you. Um, you just you start working with it, and things seem to kind of come together and, and flow freely. Um, and are uh, this decision making process is very different for different artists. Absolutely, yeah, and that's kind of what I I want to talk about that um, in terms of the kind of traditional use of materials, the what we're trained to work with. If we've um, had art classes or been to art school, you know, here's how to work with acrylic paint. Here's how to work with oil paint. Here's how to make you know wood sculpture, um, and many many artists go with that and develop it in their own way, um, and. It's sort of using the material in a, in a more traditional way, but seeing what can be expressed with it personally. So it's simply a different route. It, it's a, it's the route that I took. I mean, I was trained to paint with oils, and I added cold wax medium later on and did a lot of experimenting and figuring out techniques to use it with. But I've always just basically been an oil painter and exploring a few other things on the side. But... Um, you know that's that's always been the focus. I haven't tried to to push it in unusual ways other than adding the cold wax. When you work with uh, material in this kind of established way, it's there's still a lot of ways to really explore the materiality of it. One of them is understanding the material, um, what it's composed of, what it will do. That might involve some research. I mean, some some amount of knowledge of what you're working with is always important. If you're working with wood, you want to know different kinds of wood. You want to know how it reacts in different temperatures and all this kind of stuff. Um, if you're working with paint, you know, there's all kinds of issues having to do with, say, um, additives to the paint and things like that. So really, this approach to materiality can be really deep because you, you really can learn so much about what you're working with, but it's perhaps not as, you know, experimental, exploratory, and it doesn't, um, it doesn't draw attention to itself in the way that some other approaches to material can do, uh, other than the person looking at it and saying, oh yeah, that's an oil painting. Oh, maybe there's wax in there somewhere, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but that's, that's about as far as the material importance goes. So, um, but I, I want to spend most of the time talking about the more conceptual aspects of materiality, where where artists are really looking to the material itself to um, bring meaning to the work. And there's a lot of different examples of this um, stuff, and I'll just ramble on about a few of them, I guess. Um, and, and a lot of it with a really conceptual basis. In other words, what we know about the material, what we know about the material that's used or or how the person is using it, uh, what we associate with that is really important. And in fact, it may even be more important than um, the appearance of the work or how it looks. Um, and, and looking back just very briefly at art history, um, 
there have been a lot of really influential artists who have um, worked in this category of materiality and, and kind of movements in modern times. Um, Marcel Duchamp comes to mind and the Dada movement and his very famous use of a, uh, a urinal, a toilet as an art object. Right. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, somebody like Robert Rauschenberg, who uh, brought a lot of different materials together in his work. Uh, Joseph Buys, a German artist who um, explored some also some very unusual materials and um, installations and performance pieces. So this is really big tradition of it's not necessarily about what the thing looks like. Um, it also has to do with what the thing is that I'm using, that I'm working with, and how what what our associations are with it, what questions it raises, and all this kind of thing. Well, and so much of the folk art that's out there, and this may be a, a whole topic for another show, but um, so much of the folk art that's out there is is just done with you know found objects or concrete or just whatever is available and uh you know that's to me that's like it's really cool to go and if if you have an opportunity to see some of this stuff there's a really famous um uh folk art installation the concrete park in uh is that uh phelps wisconsin or phillips, phillips yeah yeah, yeah. And, and it's it's, it's if amazing. you have an opportunity to make it up to wisconsin it's really cool there's actually an airbnb there now where you can you can stay at that at that house that's right there well, in, in Wisconsin, oddly, has more of these type of outdoor um, folk art installation places than I think any other state. It's right. The, uh, what also is it about serial people killers. in Wisconsin? <laughs> What's that? I said also serial killers. Oh, okay. Well, that's yeah. you know, I don't think I don't think that's going to be a topic for another podcast. I, but. Probably not. But I think that they maybe come from the same. Uh, aspect of neuroses caused by our long harsh winters but <laughs> um but yeah it's uh there's there's something about this place that uh maybe makes people a little bit crazy and uh sometimes it's beautiful and wonderful aspects of crazy and sometimes not so much <laughs> come to wisconsin okay um and, and you're there, and I'm here in New Mexico, so this all seems very far away right now. But Well, New Mexico is another place with, with a lot of that as well. Um, a lot of just weird folk art and, um, you know, certain aspects of craziness just in the local culture. and. Um, well, okay, so let's call it inventive. And inventive use of materials is definitely an aspect of materiality. I'm right. trying to steer us back here to the topic. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> well, well, like I say, this whole idea of, of folk art could be a whole a whole other show. It, it so. would be very interesting. Um, so the the ch I had in my notes a lot of this work that focuses on materiality. It looks at the hierarchy of materials and says, "Hey, why is oil paint?" more highly regarded than concrete or whatever it is. So there's often a, a use of materials, even in, in the fine art category, where something's shown in a gallery or museum, there's often a use of materials that kind of wakes people up to the fact of, hey, it's all stuff. You know, this is there there we have a we, there's a definite hierarchy in the art world of what what's okay, what you know, marble is wonderful. Concrete is a challenge to marble. And so, 
you see this aspect um, as a conceptual aspect of a lot of this um, material-focused work. Um, using, using found objects, using um, things that are considered kind of disposable, um, sometimes the work is, is ephemeral. It's not meant to last, and that's another big challenge to what we think of as art um, and what's, what's right and good about the materials used in art. Um, there's this whole thing in a lot of art about something being archival, something being long-lasting, etc., which does tie in with the art market, this thing to be purchased. Um, and there's a really interesting artist I think a lot of people know called Andy Goldsworthy, and he has for years made, um, made works of art out in nature that are absolutely incredible. And some of them are made with some, like ice. Well, ice is going to melt. Um, it's absolutely built into the piece. Um, and they may be very fragile things made out of sticks. As soon as the wind blows, it's going to come apart. There's some really good books and, and um, documentaries about what he does. The way that he does make them long-lasting is he photographs them. And the photographs are beautiful, but the work itself is gone. And it might only last um, less than an hour and be constantly changing the whole time. So real emphasis on what he's working with, going to a place and looking around and saying, oh, there's lots of different colored leaves here. What could I do with that? You know. Um, so that's another way that it shows up, um, this kind of, hey, I don't really, uh, it's not important to me that this thing lasts over time. This can be in the moment. Um, another aspect is just pushing new ways of using materials uh, and process kind of unexpected novel. Um, for example, you might take something like string, which is um, kind of an everyday object, and use it to make some, you know, monumental sculpture. <laughs> You'd say, oh, but that's made out of string, you know. <laughs> that's very interesting. Uh, again, that aspect of contrast. Um, a couple people that came to mind with this kind of pushing of ways of using materials. Uh, Anthony Tapias, one of my favorite artists, um, and he worked in Barcelona. And he did things like he would attach objects to uh, the two-dimensional surface, um, maybe pieces of wood or something like that. And he'd also put sand, like a big area of just sand on his painting or something. <laughs> it, it just... It involves you in a way that it's hard to explain, but you look at that material in a different way and uh, see it interacting with the paint. There's usually some paint there as well or some imagery. Well, and there's something very interesting about taking something without, with little or no intrinsic value and giving it value through the artistic process. Yeah, I kind of love that. Yeah, and it's something... I. I you know, I think that a, a lot of the art that people are most likely to own, especially early on when they're buying art, are things that that do have intrinsic value. And the the one that comes to mind immediately is jewelry. Um, almost everyone owns some amount of jewelry. And it, its artistic value varies from very little to very quite a bit, but it does have intrinsic material value. Um, and, uh, and so it's, it's a, it is a challenge to that whole concept of, of the way that we invest money in art as people who are consuming art. 
mm-hmm. um, to be purchasing something that's made out of string or um, you know, some concrete, something without a whole lot of intrinsic value. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, and then, you know, there's the whole realm of things with practical value, like, you know, clay uh, or wooden vessels or, you know, bowls or things like that, where the value comes to us through the way that we can use them. Right. But there is that, yeah, there's that value that, it's sort of in your face if you're looking at something that is made out of, say, uh, an, uh, an assemblage that's made from stuff that was picked up by the side of the road or something, you know? It's like, oh, wow, and somebody did something amazing with that. And it is a, an absolutely uh, important art movement now to use recycled materials and to use found objects that um, would not have intrinsic value. So, it's pretty interesting. Um, another one who comes to another artist who comes to mind in that category, he was highly regarded as a fine artist, is Louise Nevelson. And she would, um, I think sometimes she did create the wooden pieces of her work, but other times she used things that she found that were made of wood that were just cast off or extra building materials or something like that. And she would paint them all in this monochromatic tone and assemble them in these little box-like units, and they're intricate and amazing um, pieces. And um, uh, there have been countless examples of, as you were mentioning, sort of uh, what they call also outsider art or naive art, folk art, um, of people assembling enormous environments out of stuff. (laughs) Um, And I guess I, I also wanted to touch on kind of Oh, cultural, social, political kind of uses of material culturally uh, throughout time in many different cultures. There have been certain materials that had a lot of um, spiritual meaning or or meaning in rituals, things like, you know, feathers or um, gold, uh, certain colors of paint that were always regarded within a culture as being very special. And so culturally, we have invested um, materials with meaning, with value. Um, and in you know Western society, I mentioned marble earlier, or something like marble has always been very elevated in terms of you know its worth and and what we what meaning it has in that way. But the worth doesn't have to be material worth. It can be something um, something else, something spiritual or meaningful in the culture. Um, and you see this in contemporary art with um, examining materials in terms of what they mean in a social context or a political context. Um, an example that came to mind is, um, I don't have any particular artist names because I didn't research this myself, but I have seen work where traditional uh, women's crafts like embroidery or crochet are used to make monumental sculpture or a political statement or something like that saying this process that was always um, relegated to something just sort of decorative or a little craft thing that women did but is actually uh, a complicated process could be elevated to um, into making some kind of a statement Um, and that's a bit general but this 
if you if you looked into this realm of political or social art, you'd find a lot of use of uh, materials that would be considered part of daily life, but um, taking them into a broader context. Um, Real quick, I want to take a minute to mention a big change that's coming to Squeegee Press, to Rebecca's company. Squeegee Press is known for its award-winning book, videos, workshops, and tools, all created for artists working with cold wax medium. Rebecca and her partner, Jerry McLaughlin, have announced that later this month, Squeegee Press will become Cold Wax Academy and will soon include some exciting new membership features. As part of this change, their video, Cold Wax Medium, a video workshop, will become available as streaming content for members only. This comprehensive video, nearly seven hours long, covers everything that Rebecca and Jerry teach in a five-day workshop and more. If you prefer to own the video, it's on sale at $250 off from now until the end of September when access will shift to streaming only. To purchase and for more information, please visit www.squeegeepress.com. That's S-Q-U-E-E-G-E-E-P-R-E-S-S.com. And don't forget to join the mailing list for updates on all the new offerings from Cold Wax Academy. Back to the show. So what I just went through there were, you know, all different, touching on different aspects of materiality. I think just to give the general idea of what it's about. Um, and and as I said, we're going to do some episodes that are more specific about people using different materials and emphasizing the importance of those materials. But basically, the choices that we make, whether we whether we choose to emphasize or whether we choose not to emphasize, those are important in your work and, and how other people are going to look at it. The fact that we have that choice is part of our work. Um, even if we're kind of in default mode as, as to using what we've always used or something like that. Um, so, uh, you know, the fact that we have those choices makes it something to think about. I was cruising around um, on the, on the internet looking looking at ideas about materiality and I came across it was a, a, a graduate thesis um, that was written a few years ago by um, Christina Murdoch Mills at the University of Montana and I, I picked up this uh, bit that she wrote that I think goes to this issue and that is that materials this I'm quoting her now materials significantly inform the content of contemporary art um, for example, the degree of refinement that gives a sense of being in process or being very refined. Um, the choice of traditional or non-traditional art materials that align works with either a past tradition or with concepts of the new. And the artist's personal story or circumstances out of which the art arises are what ground this discussion of materiality. There's a whole lot of stuff to think about here. Um, as I said at the beginning, it's a big topic. Um, and I, I liked her point about the degree of refinement because that's another thing that draws our attention to the material itself. If we see a very refined oil painting where we don't see a single brush stroke, um, you know, it's it's a whole different feeling than if we see something with a lot of gestural marks and jagged edges that suggest this sort of energy of process. And it 
you know, any of us working in any medium can think about the degree of refinement that we're after. This has been a bit of a personal issue for me because I find it hard to leave things looking very raw. <laughs> and I've been, I've been pushing myself in small works and things in my sketchbook to be more gestural, to let things show the process a bit more. Process and materiality are completely intertwined. And so showing the process draws attention to how what, what material the artist is using. So I thought that was an interesting point to uh, touch on in this whole topic. Yeah, and it's something that um, is sometimes very interesting to incorporate into work, and sometimes um, it's uh, it's the interesting thing is not knowing how something was done. And that's that's another really good point because there is a mysteriousness to hiding that. There's a an enigmatic presence to work where you you can look at it and say, I don't know how this was made. I don't know what materials were made were used to make it and yeah it's like it's it's has a, a a very special presence that is another whole way of approaching materiality and i kind of i appreciate all these different aspects of it but that one in particular does intrigue me because i think when you when you see a work of art and you don't know how it was made you sort of take in the the whole it has a presence that doesn't lead you down the path right away of uh, say looking at the little label beside it to see oh how, what are the materials in this you know which is something a lot of people do right away um, if you're just sort of caught up in the thing as an object as a thing that is mysterious there's something special about that um, and it's difficult to achieve well and it's a either way it's kind of a nod to people who are in the know in some way people who have a true appreciation for it whether whether you're you're letting aspects of your process become visible where people can look at it and people who know what they're looking at can say oh i see what they did there um or whether you're completely concealing your process and people who are in the know and understand process and materials look at it and say well how the heck did they do that you know, <laughs> right. so either way it's something that is is kind of toying with people who have a little bit more of an in-depth knowledge of uh -huh. what you're actually trying to achieve yeah and i suppose in a way it does it's it's as concerned with materiality as anything else i mean even if it's even if it's obscured and um not obvious it's still it still involves, I mean, we will always look at a work of art and think on some level, how was that done? And so it's, it's um, again, gets down to the artist's choice of how they want, how they want to engage the viewer in that way. And either way, it's, it's about the intention involved. Mm -hmm. Intention is hugely important. And I think that's why I wanted to talk about this whole topic because it's coming at the use of materials in a different way. We often talk about visual language and we talk about um, principles of design and you know ways of organizing and all those things. And, and yet taking a step back to look at the actual process of materials is something we, we haven't really talked about and it's, it's absolutely central. Right, and it's something that so many artists just take for granted they yeah. they've yeah. been sucked into a certain process and certain materials and they've never reached outside of that 
it can be very exploratory to to say what else can I do? What else can I do with this thing that I, this one process or material that I'm very familiar with? How can I push it? What what else can I do? Yeah, and there's also I you know I, I keep on going back to this kind of found materials and um, using what's available kind of line of thinking, um, but uh, so often that's it's so entwined with um, we've talked about our identity as artists and. Um, and, uh, the, the drive to create and just channeling that energy into whatever you can achieve with whatever you have. And if you look at, you know, prisoners, you know, they have toilet paper and soap and they can do incredible stuff with it. Or, um, you know, we, we talked in this episode about folk artists using, you know, broken glass and concrete, um, so it's it's uh it's an aspect of the creative process that comes from this this innate drive to create with whatever we have and sometimes that shapes our process and how we grow as artists uh, and it can move us in in very positive directions that we might not have gone in if we just went the conventional route with our materials and processes. Yeah. Well, you know, Ross, usually you ask me to provide the wrap up, but I think you just did. (laughs) Okay, then. (laughs) Well, that just about wraps up this episode of The Messy Studio. For more from The Messy Studio, please check out www.messystudiopodcast.com and sign up for the email list. You can also find The Messy Studio on Facebook, as well as public profiles for both Rebecca Kroll and myself, Ross Tickner. For more from Rebecca Kroll, please check out www.rebeccacroll.com and www.squeegeepress.com and sign up for the email lists to stay up to date on events, book signings, and openings. The Messy Studio Podcast is a core publication management production. Thanks for listening. We'll be back again next week with more art and entertainment. In the meantime, embrace your creative space, messy or otherwise. Thanks, everybody.